Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run companies with a special focus on micro-private equity and permanent capital. You can learn more at thinklikeowners.com. This is my first conversation on the podcast with more than one person. I'm meeting with the team from searchfunder.com, an online community dedicated to search funds and the various parties involved. A search fund is the smallest form of micro-private equity I've found thus far, and is typically one entrepreneur seeking out a company to buy and run as the CEO. The team consists of the two co-founders, Luke Tatone and Mark Yuan, and their COO, Karen Spencer, all of whom are graduates of MIT. Luke is the first speaker, followed by Mark and then Karen. During our conversation, we discuss what a search fund is, how they're structured, who participates in search funds, and how they've evolved over time. If you are interested in running, buying, or even starting your own company one day, this conversation is for you. I met the team after signing up on searchfunder.com only to realize all three of them lived here in Portland, Oregon. Mark initially reached out and invited me to coffee where we chatted about all things search funds and I quickly met the rest of the team. This conversation is the result of one of my most recent and favorite small world stories. I hope you get as much value out of this conversation as I did. Please enjoy our conversation. So if we could just start by going over what a search fund is, how they're generally structured, what the goal is, um, and then who generally participates in the search funds, the different parties involved. Uh, Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways of defining a search fund. Um, At Search Funder, we take the broadest possible definition. So fundamentally for us, it's uh, an entrepreneur that's seeking to buy their way into owning a company, uh, generally with other people's capital, uh, very early in their career, although not always. Most of the search funds that we uh, bump into and participate on our site are either the sort of traditional variety that's popularized in the Stanford study uh, where you have usually a freshly minted MBA uh, raise a few hundred thousand dollars at the front end of their search and then they go and hunt for a business for a couple of years and then have an obligation to give those investors the uh, right of first refusal on any deals they come back with. Kind of probably the older model and probably really as old as um, businesses themselves is the idea of just buying a business um, without a, a sophisticated search fund model and you see that uh, gaining in popul- uh, popularity, primarily uh, with the sort of uh, thought leadership of the folks at Harvard Business School right now. So uh, Royce Yudkoff and Rick Ruback, uh, Jim Sharp, they really promote the idea of self-funding your search, which basically means you just use your own capital um, for the period of time where you're hunting for a company. And then once you have a deal, then you go raise capital at that time without any pre-commitments. And then uh, thirdly, there's been a, a rise of accelerators where rather than having a distributed um, pool of investors, you have effectively one investor that raises capital but funnels it all to you through, through them that will, will help structure your search in a more sort of uh, predictable way. We, we try to distinguish between search funds and independent sponsors. and. You know, insofar as the, the the market we're trying to cover, if you're looking to make um, 
serial acquisitions but don't intend to run the company yourself, you're probably best described as an independent sponsor and distinct from a search fund. But if you do intend to operate the company, uh, that in many ways may be the sort of defining characteristic in terms of what a search, uh, search fund means to us. I've been really fascinated by search funds because it seems like the smallest possible form of micro-private equity. Um, what kinds of people typically take searches or become searchers? Are they, like, is it split, you know, in thirds of, you know, prior bankers and private equity associates and then that goes, you know, there's former CFOs and then founders? How does the distribution work out generally? I would say that the, the core demographic of searchers tend to be MBAs from the top 10 ranked business schools, um, both in the U.S. and internationally. So places like Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, um, but also international um, prestigious schools like ESA, IE Business School, London Business School. And the reason for that is because in those schools, as part of the MBA programs, they have one or more classes dedicated to teaching their students how to run a search fund, um, how to basically become a CEO. You know, if you're young, like a 28, 29-year-old MBA, and you have the aspiration of being a CEO, there's really like two short ways to get to that. One is, of course, to do a startup and start your own company. Um, but success rates are very, very low, and it's not the most reliable way to... You could call yourself a CEO, but the idea is that, you know, to be, to be actually running a real company with employees and revenue, it takes a while to get there. Search is another path. So rather than taking that huge risk of trying to get something brand new off the ground, you find essentially, like, and most search deals fall into this category, you find an aging business owner who needs to basically pass on his company and doesn't have kids that want to stay in the business. So we're talking about you know, medium-sized companies that tend to be family-run businesses. So you're thinking like small manufacturing companies, accounting firms, things like that, insurance companies, what have you. And the idea is you come in there and um, you buy it out. So the type of people who end up in this uh, sort of CEO role are very representative of the entrance requirements of the um, business schools, so you, which typically tend to admit you know, former consultants and former bankers and uh, private equity guys. And I would say that historically it's usually been the people who've worked in finance that are going into search funds because they have more confidence, they, they have perhaps participated in these uh, acquisition type deals before, not as the principal, but you know, as an associate or something like that. So they're more confident in their ability to take down a business. But we're seeing a shift from kind of finance-backed uh, folks to more operationally-backed folks. And that's basically being driven by the investors. Because ultimately the goal is, you know, the process of finding a company and acquiring it kind of defines the search fund. But ultimately the goal is to run the company and to build value. So actually, you know, the operation where you're running a company for 10 years is much more important than the search itself. So would you say that of the different experiences that you could have had before running a search fund, would you say that the, the operator, CEO, founder type of skill set 
would be more valuable than that of the private equity guy? At, at least the investors view it as more valuable and the ability to lead like um, employees in these kind of small companies, which is uh, oh, funny that you mentioned that. Like the, the one demographic that is very large and very well represented is, is um, military officers who have left the military and have gone on the top tier MBAs because they're used to leading um, employees from all walks of life, right? So rather than a consultant or a banker who may have, you know, mostly have dealt with a workforce that was very, very white collar um, throughout their careers, these types of businesses tend to be smaller. You might have hourly employees. So actually military searchers are very um, eagerly sought out by investors in the search fund space. Yeah, and I was going to add on to what Mark said. I interview a lot of uh, searchers who turn into operators, and we try to catch them about that six month in. And one thing that they universally talk about is the ability to be able to um, engage with people of all walks of life and in all situations. Uh, typically, if you're going to a prestigious school, you've kind of been on a track in a certain way and you've worked in a certain type of environment, and now you're working in something that's completely different with people with completely different concerns. So they've had to take crash courses on uh, their emotional and social intelligence skills. How many searchers over time have you seen, studied, maybe interviewed, or just in general had on the site? So we have been able to tally um, over 900 search funds having been formed since the beginning uh, in 1984. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a big number, and we've seen exponential growth in uh, search fund formations in the last five years. Yeah, can you speak more to the, the growth you've seen over the last five years? Before we started recording, we got to see a little bit of your some of your data from this past year and prior, and it just looks like tremendous growth. How has that looked over the last five years? It, it, I, I think you summarized it pretty well. I think if it was uh, profitability numbers for a company, I think a lot of people on their board would be doing a jig of some sort. It's just a very steep uh, slope uh, upward, of, uh, and I think the trajectory is going to continue. There may be bumps here and there, but it's definitely going to continue. So how many searchers or search funds were formed last year versus like five years ago and ten years ago? What so, do those numbers look like? Uh, so we're you know approaching that uh, sort of 180 plus for, this year for 2017. That's the that's the one where I feel like I've got the the hardest data. Um, and then five years before that, you're looking at 29 search funds wow. that we've uh, been able to learn about through our community. That's so, that's yeah. been impressive. Yeah. What do you think is driving that hockey stick like growth for search funds? I think Mark alluded to it. The more that um, schools teach about it, the more articles that get written. I know that there are more schools coming online um, that are, are teaching it, and and I think that it's a much more compelling path uh, with the baby boomers retiring as well. Are these searchers buying businesses typically from owners who are retiring, or what other circumstances are the owners selling from? Typically, it's somebody who's retiring. So if you think about a baby boomer, they've run their company 
20 plus 30 years uh, they don't have a family successor for the business and maybe not somebody in um, house that uh, is capable of running it or financially able to buy the business um, they might have a life event um, you know sickness or illness or s something else may happen where they finally think okay now is now is the time uh, for me to think about a successor and and it's a great uh, moment for an enterprising person to uh, step in and, and buy a company but looking at the search process more in depth what are the typical steps for a searcher from going from nothing to acquiring the company I assume there's a fundraising stage, then there's the search stage. What do each of those look like? I think the first stage is learning what a search fund is, and that can take a, a little bit of doing. Uh, luckily, we've got a ton of resources, just to put a plug for us, on, on searchfunder.com uh, that help people in getting started. And then um, the next step is interviewing um, other searchers, investors, really understanding what the dynamics and the nuts and bolts are. And then I think you're moving Moving on to finding sources of financing. Like how are you going to fund that time? Is it going to be, uh, you know, through a pool of investors, or are you going to be able to do it on your own? What we tell searchers, and it's almost a carbon copy of basically what, if you ask the professor at Harvard Business School, they'll tell you to do. Um, and in some ways, we built kind of the community around these needs. Is before you think about launching your own search fund, the best thing you can do is to intern with current searchers. And like Karen said, there's probably 180 um, searchers out there in the market right now prop and there's that are kind of in the search phase. And the idea is that um, if, if I look on the site now, probably 95% of them are hiring interns <laughs> because searchers are always looking for help. Because if you think about the process of reaching out to business owners, if you're familiar with private equity, it's a lot of code calling, it's a lot of diligence, um, and a lot of roll up your sleeves hard work. And as a result, it takes about two years to find a company. Um, that's kind of the average speed, and you can use as much help as you can get. And it's a great way to um, see if search is right for you before you commit is to help the current searcher. Um, after that, if you decide it's still for you, and we tell everybody this, like, hey, you're thinking about doing a search fund, I hope you know searching really sucks. <laughs> like, it's, it's probably going to be the worst. Um, it's basically door-to-door -door sales, right? The idea is that business owners probably, for the most part, aren't interested in selling, don't really want to talk to you. They're hit up by brokers multiple times a week. Luke and I were talking to a business owner, and he was telling us that they have set up a special hotline just for people who say they want to buy their company so they could direct it to them. And I think it was some guy named Frank, and we're like, what's Frank like? And they're like, Frank does not exist. <laughs> so you're doing a lot of solicitation. Um, the, the idea is that, you know, 99% sort of rejection rate, and all of this is at the end to do just a single deal. So if you can kind of stomach the search phase, your reward is that you get to be a CEO at a relatively young age. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think one thing I would add to that that um, would be maybe a little bit encouraging to a prospective searcher. Um, for most searchers, I think the first six months to a year is just learning how to search efficiently. Mm -hmm. And you know, the first couple of business owners you talk to, which are very hard to get in front of, you're gonna mess up. 
and that's just a part of the process. But by the time you've done it a few times, you can credibly present yourself as a serious buyer. And that might be six months to a year into your search that you're finally in a position to actually, uh, actually consummate a deal. Um, but that said, you know, a lot of times searchers put a arbitrary timeline on when they're gonna stop searching. I think our belief is that if you're patient and if you're um, doing the right things, you know, executing your plan daily, uh, buying a company is a very, very doable thing. And uh, it's not our belief, you mean personality dispositions and you might lose the desire to search after you see what types of businesses are available. But if you're committed and uh, determined, it's our belief that uh, a competent searcher should be successful if they give it uh, sufficient time. And so within that, um, that searching process, what sorts of people are they talking to? Is it just directly reaching out to owners? Do, they, do a lot of searchers reach out to brokers as well? And what kinds of people get involved in that search process? So I, I would say um, for most searchers, it's maybe 60-40 or maybe 70-30. Um, where the 70 or the larger part of the time is on, spent on the direct outreach and a s- smaller portion of the time is spent on broker outreach um, as m- a lot of businesses for sale are, representative by, are re- represented by brokers. So it's a great source of leads. Um, but at the same time, if you can find a business that's not in a competitive bidding process you know, and where you're one of a f- the only or one of a few buyers rather than many, then that's a much better position for you. Um, but I would say that as kind of the internet is gaining traction, um, sort of information becomes more free, we're seeing the broker route is becoming more and more accepted. That being that if an owner is interested in selling, he'll probably engage a broker and you know, be more widely listed. And these kind of proprietary deals where you're the only buyer are kind of um, eventually I think they'll probably go away as the market becomes more efficient. And we hear a lot of uh, brokers that maybe a year ago were resistant to the idea of um, working with searchers. They're now sort of aware that it's a phenomenon that's not going to go away. And um, searchers are here to stay. The numbers are only going to increase. Um, We were talking just the other day with a broker who's putting on uh, major conference in a couple of months and he was just astounded by the number of closed deals. So uh, I think there's a growing acceptance of the search fund path as legitimate and uh, it does seem like you will have kind of a convergence where brokers who already have these relationships with companies are going to be more willing to work with searchers and there'll be more uh, action there than perhaps there has been in the past. Are there some pros and cons to working with brokers versus the direct outreach? <laughs> I would say that for for the direct outreach, um, the pros is you might find a deal that's not in a competitive process and you'd, you'd be able to pay a smaller multiple, which everybody on the buy side wants, and it's better for investors, it's better for you. Um, also, you might uncover some companies that um, are, could be more interesting or more niche, but the biggest sort of problem with reaching out to a company that's not represented is that the owner might not be serious about selling. So a searcher can and often will (laughs) waste um, probably months 
corresponding and doing diligence on a company only to have the owner at the end of it say, eh, I'm not really that interested in selling. Um, whereas usually if an owner has engaged a broker, he's already made a mental commitment to not pull out. Searchers on average will put out probably, will research like in-depth um, maybe six or seven companies to buy one. Um, and the idea is that you know a lot of times the deals don't happen because the owner pulls out. I, I would include in the discussion of broker outreach just general outreach to say your local uh, you know business alliance, your own network of of uh, you know folks in finance and banking, uh, people who are likely to know about businesses and that might be for sale. So I think when we say broker outreach, we also mean just that broader outreach to um, that network too. How many are searching within a certain region, like a certain maybe a city or state? versus having a more national scope where they feel more comfortable with the idea of maybe they have to go work in Des Moines or um, Chicago and you know maybe they're from San Francisco. So definitely if you go down the traditional search fund route, the investors are going to require that you are open to buying a business anywhere. Uh, you just don't have the luxury of sort of being too picky geographically. Um, but that said, anecdotally, and we do have this data, we haven't sort of uh, organized it in a way that's easy to publish yet, but we probably should. The location of the searcher and the number of miles to their uh, acquisition target is actually pretty close. And my guess would be it's probably within a two-hour drive or something like that. And if you think about it, it makes sense because if you're working on a warm lead with a business owner, if you can hop in the car and go see them face to face, if it's an easy thing to do rather than jumping on a plane, it's just a higher probability that you're going to um, have a positive interaction. And I think you do see that play out. You know, there's uh, businesses that you hear about where it's like they literally were on the same street as where they happen to be conducting their search. You know, there's others that are, you know, completely across the country. But uh, I would say a prospective searcher should think hard about where they're locating themselves while they're searching, because there's a high probability that their acquisition is going to be um, within that region, let's say. We see that self-funded searchers tend to ha have more geographic constraints. So for instance, they have a, a spouse uh, who is constrained by geography or they have kids that they don't want to move. And that's one of the things that um, is enticing about the self-funded model is being able to say, I only want to live in a certain geography and I will find a business in that area. Uh, the trick of that is that you have to be much more flexible about what type of business you're going to buy at that point. Yeah, so in the, in the traditional model where investors are paying your search costs and you're drawing a salary for the two years that you're searching and essentially you're not taking any personal risk, um, the reason that they, at least in the U.S., um, they require you to search basically the entire U.S. is you know, you have investors pre-committed to you and they have a certain amount of capital they need to put to work. So you have to buy a larger company. And to buy a larger company, if you just look at the numbers, there's orders of magnitude more companies, say, under $10 million in revenue than over $10 million in revenue. Um, so it's just basically a sort of a supply of businesses issue. 
Um, so if you go traditional, because you have to put more investor capital to work, you have, kind of have to search nationally because locally there's just not enough companies. Whereas if you're self-funded and basically you're going to be the primary financial benefactor of your deal, you there's no sort of equity requirements. If you're happy with a business that, say, spits off 800K in profit every year, um, something that might be too small for a cadre of professional investors, you, know, you can look for a company that spits off 800K in profit every year, uh, sort of in your local area. We've kind of been touching a little bit on it, but what is the normal size range of these companies in terms of sort of owner earnings or EBITDA? Is it one to four, one to five? And then what kind of multiples are they finding on these companies? For self-funded searchers, usually what you see is something under $5 million in enterprise value. Even though, you know, the sort of the grail, if you will, if you get very lucky, you could buy something much larger. But you can buy good businesses with between probably 1 and 2 million in EBITDA for a 4 or 5x multiple. And at those multiples, it becomes very easy to do a leverage buyout sort of um, private equity type deal. Um, when you get into some of the traditional search fund deals that are a little bit larger, and the average sort of equity injection on those deals, just the equity portion of the deal is around $8 million. So you're looking at companies where the enterprise value is probably $15, $20 million. Those, uh, sometimes the highest multiple we've seen is uh, probably 7x that searchers are paying. So still kind of in the financial buyer multiple category, and they're definitely not like strategic acquisitions, right? And so, so the idea is that you still want to go as low as possible on the multiple, but for some of the bigger deals, we've seen as high as maybe so. What do you think makes these companies have such lower multiples then? As you move up the chain of company size, multiples seem to tend to expand, especially if they're like publicly traded. Why are these small companies still traded for such a small multiple in comparison? Well, it's just a matter of supply and demand, right? So, and access. So for a, for a smaller company, there's less buyers. So in general, you know, they, the, they always say, like in the appraisal, uh, appraisers will say, yeah, we can appraise your company based on all these formulas, but at the end of the day, your company is only worth what someone will pay for it. So for smaller companies where it doesn't make sense for a large private equity group or a strategic to go out there and acquire a $2 million company because it probably costs them more money to research it than it the revenue of the whole company, <laughs> right? The individual buyer is kind of their only option. Like for a business owner, everybody would t- sell to like a strategic acquirer at 20x if they could. <laughs> um, but a lot of searchers, you know, that's a lot of their whole strategy is as an individual, I could go out and maybe I could buy like three or four of these $2 million companies. Now all of a sudden it's attractive to a bigger buyer and turn it around and sell it. Yeah, so I, I think that we would see in general that search funds are efficient below the threshold of where it's efficient for private equity firms to play. And that probably, you know, where the the twilight is, you know, maybe it's up to very aggressively $5 million in EBITDA, but probably somewhere around $2 million, it becomes a really clear that it's difficult for private equity. Um, and then, you know, we're always asked, what's the lower bound? And I think in that case, it usually comes down to the opportunity cost for the searcher, um, considering how much they value controlling their schedule and uh, you know being their own boss. 
But uh, you could use the search model to buy a very, very small company uh, with, you know, three or four hundred thousand even if you wished. Mm-hmm. And what kind of companies are these searchers usually looking for? I assume they're pretty stable, recurring revenues, probably a common one that is looked for and desired, but they also don't want to just buy a, a glorified job. So what kind of companies usually come up? Yeah, so they tend to be stable, sort of boring businesses, if you will. Um, on the face of it, the easiest sort of explanation for it would be good LBO targets, traditional good LBO targets. So companies that already are not levered very high, so that you can pay for a portion of the acquisition with that. Um, companies that the searcher can run, so they tend to be simple in operation, but say the searcher is like a software developer or something, and they are confident in running a software company. We see software as a service businesses being pretty popular right now. Um, of course, low customer concentration, you know, high recurring revenue. Those are kind of concerns that when you hand over the company, it's not that all the customers of the company itself belong to the owner rather than the company. So that's always a big danger. But it just some fun examples. You know, we we know searchers who've bought. Companies that you would be like, wow, that's a good company, but I would have never thought this was an actual company. For instance, something somebody who tests all the fire hoses for firehouses up and down the East Coast, <laughs> or um, somebody who does the billing for ambulances on the West Coast. Um, when an ambulance picks you up, apparently there's a whole like software system behind that that can manage the billing, which I imagine a lot of people aren't able to pay extreme ambulance fees. <laughs> uh, there's also like manufacturing ketchup nozzles, what what have you. So it, it tends to be like medium-sized companies uh, in industries that their functions are pretty essential, so they're stable and they're not really going away. And the owner is generally selling the company because they want to retire or for a non-business reason. We don't really see a lot of like turnaround situations or startups being purchased um, because at the end of the day, the searcher is a financial buyer and He's buying the company based on the financial strength. I'd love looking at um, various companies within this micro PE range because you discover companies that are doing things you didn't even think was a business. Like the very companies you described, like you have no idea that, like obviously there's a nozzle on my ketchup thing, but I didn't know that there was a whole business behind just that one little piece. What kind of other examples have you run across through your experience with search funds? Um, oh, there's a really cool company, and we did an interview with them. Um, what they do is they lease plants to office buildings. So you walk into like a big building, and you say, like, man, they got good topiaries inside here. Well, someone has to like water those and do all of that. But apparently, like, rather than like hiring someone to water your plants and do something, it's cheaper to just lease the plant with the maintenance itself. And that's kind of like a local sticky business where every city would need that. <laughs> so um, I, I believe Karen actually had a really good interview with the acquirer of one of those businesses. So that was really interesting. There, it's all over the range. And the, the, the interesting part is that they're never going to be on you know Fast Company or Forbes magazine because they're not sexy businesses. They're going to generate cash. Um, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about pool maintenance in, in sunny areas. You're talking about the ambulance services. You're talking about insurance services, uh, therapy, so uh, autism therapy or drug therapy, businesses that you can understand and that people need um, and that provide an essential service. 
Mark, when we met for coffee, I remember we just we talked a little bit about this company that was in the the pet funeral services. Oh yeah, I think that's just a really interesting example. Would you be able to touch on that just a little bit? Yeah. So one of the first searchers out there, he he actually purchased a pet cemetery, and subsequently went on to roll up like various pet cemetery and pet cremation services, and it's a and pet bereavement sort of industry, and I think he's a pretty big national player now. I, I guess the most famous example of a search fund story, one that you'll hear at every search fund conference and they'll teach it to you in every business school as a case, is a company called Asurion. And if you've ever bought any electronics through Amazon or you get insurance on your cell phone, chances are Asurion is an insurance company that's backing it. I think it's a multi-billion dollar company now, but it started as a search fund when two Stanford graduates, I think in the early 90s, um, basically they went out and they bought a roadside tow truck service company. They said, wow, towing is kind of like insurance, right? Because it's like, what if you can sort of pre-purchase towing so you have it when you need it? Now there's roadside assistance programs that you can buy. And then they realized, wait, we uh, everybody calls for towing with their cell phone. <laughs> Why don't we expand the insurance options to cell phones? And they kind of did a hard pivot and you know, there was clearly a vacuum in the market for insurance um, cell phones. And they've kind of taken over that market uh, through kind of this search fund acquisition plus hard pivot. And now they're actually um, some of the original sort of proprietors of the Asurian deal are some of the biggest investors and searchers now which is something else that we see. Like the life cycle of a successful searcher is you graduate from business school, you buy a company, you are somehow wildly successful in your exit of that company, and then you continue doing what you know, which is search funds, as now an investor in the community. So most searchers, the people who are backing them, are the investors are former searchers. Do you remember what they purchased the company for or what the purchase price was? Uh, I want to say $5 million. I think the important lesson there, um, one of the most attractive things about going into a search fund for an entrepreneur is that you can pretty much control your downside. If you are patient, you buy a good business with good cash flow, and now you're in business, which is difficult to do, uh, there really is no cap on your upside. And there are certainly uh, lots of examples of companies that have started out as, you know, maybe a $5 million acquisition that have grown up, gone, uh, gone on to be uh, very uh, substantial companies. So when these searchers are looking for these companies and they're, they've maybe found a few that they're interested in, what kinds of things do they do to convince the seller that they are a good buyer of their business? I would assume a lot of these sellers have probably founded the company themselves and have worked maybe a large part of their lives in the company. I would assume a lot of them care about who's buying from them. So what kinds of things do owners care about about the buyer? You know, I hesitate to say that's a myth, but I suspect that it's a myth. Buyers, uh, again, from our perspective, may, if there's a tie, may lean towards the son or daughter they never had. But uh, economics drives most transactions. And that's difficult for a searcher because you're usually the buyer of last resort because you can afford to pay the least, which is why you have to search for two years or more. 
So the name of the game, um, from my perspective, would uh, not be from the standpoint of you know differentiating yourself from the strategic buyer or um, perhaps a private equity firm or something like that, but just being patient. And there'll come a time where you're the winning bid and you just want to be in the market when that happens. I think the distinction is really in talking with uh, successful uh, buyers is making the owner of the company making the decision that they want their employees to have uh, further careers beyond when they leave the company. Um, and at that point, you really are looking at a search fund. I think it's really the only model that fits because you have a built-in CEO stepping into that path. The employees have some assurance that if they perform well, they're going to be staying on and they're not going to end up getting laid off or you know, strange things going to be happening that you might fear with a different type of buyer. So near the, near the end of the search process, when they've you know, found a, a company that's interested in selling to them, how does their process of running the search fund change from looking for companies to now doing due diligence? It looks like it's a pretty different skill set. How does that transition work and how does that process? I would say that um, looking for companies is actually a small part of the search, even though it's two years. So. It's not very hard to find brokers. It's not very hard to find listings of businesses and reach out. Um, in fact, a lot of that could be even automated with today's technology, um, CRMs and what have not. Um, most of the searcher's time is actually spent looking at individual businesses. And you know, it takes probably two or three months to diligence a company to make sure that you In the like US. <laughs> oh, in the US, right? And it's like, um, you know, you gotta see if that the owner's hiding like a plane in the books or something like that, right? <laughs> it happens all the time in these kind of size companies. So the searcher is almost diligencing. I would say most of his time is spent towards diligencing and rather than generating leads. And the search takes so long because you have to kiss a couple of um, frogs, essentially, <laughs> in order to, to find a business that you want to buy. And it could be a number of things, whether you know the finances are off or... You, you, you find that it's not a business you want to run or the owner gets code feed and that kind of thing. But once you can get to like a LOI, which is kind of an exclusive between the owner and the buyer to do that diligence, uh, I, I would say that most searchers strive to spend most of their search phase in LOIs with one or more owners. And the key is that even though you're spending most of your time on each individual businesses, is to keep the funnel going on the other side of generating leads. So if your LOI falls through, you can get work diligence in the next company. If they're hiring interns, it sounds like the vast majority are. Is the intern's job to primarily look for deals and source them? Um, I would say that an intern spends a lot of time uh, figuring out how to source deals. Um, but they also might do the first cut of the screening. So a lot of searchers won't even talk to the owner until one of their interns says this business is worth looking at. And maybe the intern has the first conversation with the business owner even. The, the interns that are most effective tend to be you know, future searchers who are currently in business school, so they're kind of going down that path. So they're pretty motivated to talk to these business owners and can kind of represent the searcher uh, pretty well because they're not that far removed from the searcher, maybe just one or two years. What percentage generally of companies that have a, a signed letter of intent, the LOI, 
How many of those roughly close after that is signed? So we've seen searchers, you know, if you get lucky, maybe the first company you look at, you buy. And so we've seen searchers been able to, you know, complete a search in like four months just because they got incredibly lucky. But usually I would say somewhere between five and seven is the average. So you would get to like a signed exclusivity with the owner five to seven times before you uh, find a company to buy. So each hurdle of the process has a low probability generally of success. Let's say they get through all of those hurdles and they finally find a company they like, they buy it, the owner's happy. How do they structure that deal? What do most deals look like? Um, so it's going to be vastly different between self-funded and traditional searchers. Because for a traditional searcher where you're drawing a salary basically from your investors while you're searching, the terms of the deal are kind of locked in um, before you ever find a company. So as a condition of your group of investors providing you the money to live on while you're searching, they say, when you find a company, this is what you're going to get. And in those situations, basically, the searcher can earn up to 30%, maybe 25% of the common stock in the company, uh, subject to preferred returns and things like that on the investors. Now, for a self-funded deal, it's pretty much wide open because the idea is there's nothing, you don't have any pre-negotiated contracts. So once you find the company, you can negotiate with investors, with banks to get whatever terms you can get. Um, but usually it comes down to, say, like a $5 million deal, you'll probably get $3 million of bank debt. You'll probably get the owner to kick in about a million dollars in a seller note. And you kind of need that to have the owner assure you that he's telling you the truth there in diligence anyways, right? So there's a condition that you know the, the owner gets paid out over time from the revenue of the company. And then um, the final million dollars in a deal like that, you can sometimes you go to friends and family, sometimes you go to professional investors who will kick in the final amount. So then the, the deal structure is significantly better for that self-funded, the one who self-funded being the one who self-funds the search process up till this point are significantly better than those who have their salary paid for during the search? Um, exactly, but usually, and this is one thing that's kind of overlooked, so I wouldn't exactly say it's absolutely better, um, because the one thing that the banks are gonna want you to do if you're self-funded is they want you to personally guarantee the debt. So if you run the business into the ground, you're now personally on the hook for $3 million or whatever you borrowed from the bank. Whereas in the traditional model, the searcher assumes basically zero financial risk. So then once they've bought the company, what sort of things should the searcher be doing in that maybe first six months or first year as they begin to acclimate to this new role? I think the best practices uh, or the general wisdom is that you do nothing. And in the first uh, six months, maybe year, what you're really trying to do is understand the drivers of the business. And probably the biggest mistake you can go in is, you know, basically lay off a bunch of staff or make huge changes and, you know, give yourself some time to understand the business that you're running. And then oftentimes, like the things you need to do are kind of just obvious at that point, you know, put in a sales team where none exists or update, you know, outmoded technology or, you know, just low hanging fruit that don't require massive disruption, but, uh, you know, provide a obvious advantage to the business. 
But that doesn't mean you get to kick your feet up on the desk and just, you know, have a placard that says CEO on it. You're, they're working really hard that first six months. Uh, typically, uh, these businesses uh, don't have robust accounting systems or financial systems. So um, some of that back operation stuff gets done during that time period so that you actually know what money's coming in, what's going out, and really understand the financial engine of the company that you've just bought. And how long do these searchers hold the companies for? I assume they could hold them indefinitely if possible, but do a lot of them sell after five to ten years or so? Um, yeah, so I would say the average holding period, um, if you look at kind of the studies that Stanford publishes, is around seven to eight years, I think. It's kind of up to the searchers and the investors what they want to do with that. Sometimes the investors, they want out because they have, you know, LPs themselves that expect a return, and the searcher might kind of recap the company where the searcher continues to run it um, while some of the investors get out. So it's like any, um, it's for the traditional guys anyways, it's like any private equity-owned company at that point. And most of the traditional deals are structured with a IRR hurdle as part of the searcher's uh, compensation. So they're definitely watching the clock. If anything, that would be what would drive a searcher in a good business to want to exit. In the self-funded model, then you're in the driver's seat. You don't have the, the sort of ticking time bomb, and you could potentially hang on to a good business indefinitely. So is searchfunder.com a pretty fair representation of the search fund market as a whole? So do you have maybe 80% of the search funds out there are on SearchFunder, or what's that number at? Uh, yeah, we aspire to have everybody. Um, I think if you compare us to, say, something like the Stanford Report, which is kind of the gold standard for search fund analysis and financial information, it's been going on for, I don't know, probably 10 years, something like that. Every couple of years, they come out with a great report. That's fantastic. They're able to get detailed financial information. They go, uh, It's a very in-depth report. But their definition of a search fund is somewhat narrow. It's defined as the traditional search fund. Um, we make it our goal to have sort of like a big tent view of search funds. We include the self-funded guys. We include the accelerators. And as new varieties um, and ways of doing search funds pop up, we make it our business to reach out to those searchers and try and bring them into the community. So I think that... Um, the scope of our, our data and our outreach, uh, while it's completely crowdsourced, is uh, very nearly comprehensive. It's very unusual. It's a kind of like a good day, you know, ring the bell, you know, when we find a new search fund that we didn't already know about. And I would say in terms of user base of the people who are active in the community, we probably have 80% plus because the idea is that search funder very quickly and it's not it's a function of you know the lively discussion on the community people can come in and just basically like ask questions when they're just trying to get started so we tend to capture people who are very early in the search process and we can kind of keep them throughout we didn't touch on this before uh, maybe i should have but all three of you went to mit which is you know right next door to harvard and their search fund uh, program why didn't the three of you start search funds? Why did you start a search fund site instead? This was uh, back when it was hard to do a search fund at uh, MIT Sloan, the business school where Mark and I attended. Karen actually went to the engineering school, so she's the real genius. 
I'm glad they admit that. I was course 10 for any MIT people listening to this. But uh, I think that year there were 10 or 15 uh, self-funded searchers out of Harvard Business School. And a couple of them were in classes. In fact, uh, there was a guy that was in a class I was TAing at MIT that was telling me about a search fund. And we kind of knew what it was, but we didn't have any sort of concrete idea such that it was realistic for us to launch a search when we graduated. And we were kind of scratching our heads and saying, well, this seems like a really, really good opportunity. And both Mark and myself, very entrepreneurial, wanted to do something um, entrepreneurial. And we just found it at that stage pretty difficult. It was kind of before there were any search fund conferences. The folks that were in search funding were very, very helpful once you were in the community. But getting into the community wasn't uh, very straightforward. And we figured we could just uh, bring the sort of benefits of social media to the space. And I guess we got exceptionally lucky in that the space has taken off exponentially. And we, we hope that uh, we're building a tool that's useful and uh, brings transparency and uh, uh, hopefully accelerates the time it takes from not knowing anything about a search fund to being right in the thick of things. Where for us, it was a uh, long and circuitous journey to get to where we are today. Yeah. Basically, if searchfunder.com existed while we were in business school, we would have definitely done search funds. <laughs> is that a, something you'd like to do in the future? Or is searchfunder.com where you'd like to stay and you'd just like to maybe observe search funds from afar? Yeah, I mean, we're our hands are definitely full. A lot of people ask us that. If, if they do, they grossly <laughs> underestimate the difficulty of running a social platform. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think we like to think of ourselves as uh, you know focusing on the picks and shovels of uh, all the uh, enterprising gold miners out there that are striking out on their own. And Karen, how did you uh, join up with Luke and Mark here? You know how they always say uh, you know stay connected to your your alumni association. It's true. <laughs> I uh, I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, and I started talking to uh, the, actually the head of uh, the MIT Alumni Association, and he said, "I know these great guys." Uh, Luke and Mark, and you should talk to them, and we hit it off, and I've uh, been with them since that day, practically, and it's been a, been a fun ride. Um, it's been very fascinating to see the the vision uh, materialize over the last few years. And there's not just search funders on the site, there's also you know, banks and intermediaries, so is it is the goal for the site to be more than just a place for search funds to communicate with each other, but also for them to get help and financing, advice, consulting, those sorts of things? Is that part of the goal? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you focus on what you're trying to accomplish as a search funder, searching is actually somewhat unnecessary and redundant, you know, in a perfect world. And ideally what you would do is just immediately walk into an LOI, diligence it, and then transact or not, and just do a series of, you know, basically uh, deals under contract until you find the right business. And I think that uh, we're in a unique position to bring that into reality maybe in the next couple of years. As in bringing on sellers of businesses? Yeah, so that happens to some extent. So we have a a number of intermediaries that bring businesses or at least uh, intermediaries that are interacting with searchers. Most of the actual um, deal uh, information happens off the platform. but uh, yeah, we, we think that over time you, you'll have intermediaries bringing businesses where the, the searcher can sort of find a deal, find the debt, and pull together the equity all in one fell swoop. 
and uh, that's definitely a, a possibility on the horizon. Is there a possibility that by bringing some of those businesses for sale onto the site, that there will be a lot more competition for those companies and they'll get better valuations? Yeah, I think that uh, searcher, I mean, cold calling businesses is probably always going to be sort of a good chunk of what a searcher does. And if you're lucky enough to uh, find a business that is not currently represented, absolutely, like that's your, your best play. But I think as Mark was alluding to uh, a while ago, as the number of searchers increases, as information becomes um, less uh, asymmetrical, it, it seems that you're going to be in a situation where the seller is not going to be stupid. You know, all they have to do is Google one or two things to realize there's a huge market for their company. And yeah, it's probably true that over time valuations will, will start to creep up. But uh, there's still a wide gap between, say, where the mature private equity sector is, um, and maybe you know the valuations better than we do, but uh, there's, a, there's a pretty wide gap between private equity and, and search funds. And you know, there might be another uh, 10 or 15 years in this space where the opportunities are just you know, to be had for, for anyone who wants to sort of jump in and give it a go. Do you think there ever comes a time where a lot of these larger private equity firms find out, like, figure out a more efficient way to um, buy companies in the more search fund size? And that it becomes a lot more competitive. Yeah. So um, basically, uh, when when we said we had about eighty percent of market, it's not just searchers; it's people engaged with search funds. So we have a lot of investors on there, um, bankers who are providing debt. And the idea is to be like, we want search funder to be like a one-stop shop for our, your social needs for searching. Like anybody that you would need to meet to get your deal done, you should be able to find them on search. But some of those investors are actually private equity firms. So it's funny you ask that because the way that private, private, the way that private equity accesses these lower middle market deals is with search funds. So some of the just some famous private equity firms that use search funds to um, access lower middle market deals, essentially like Alpine Investors or Husatonic Partners. Um, these are big PE firms, but or Peterson Partners um, in Salt Lake City. Uh, Joel Peterson, the founder of JetBlue, has a, kind of a, a fund set up as well. They mostly do private equity, but they do a lot of search too. And search is um, how they, these PE firms, they back searchers, and that's how they access them. So they're, they're not necessarily doing it from themselves, but they're just seeking out these search funds that are already... Correct, made. because if for, for a PE firm to have in-house staff to source these deals and then have you know a bench of professional CEOs to go run these small companies is just cost prohibitive. Do you think that is an advantage for the search fund that will continue on for, like you were saying, 15 years? Do you think it continues on to that point and it's something that changes or do you think it keeps going? I mean, there, there seems to be an almost inexhaustible number of businesses that could be purchased. I suppose that like the best uh, analogy would be private equity as a whole. So when you think back, you know, maybe 30 years ago when private equity was just kind of getting going, the whole idea was that, hey, look, the public markets are pretty efficient, but there's all these enormous private companies that are being run inefficiently and we can just jump in, put on some debt and get these fantastic returns. And basically that happened for decades, right? But then what's happened now? 
capital flows in. There's now five or 6,000 private equity firms out there. There's a trillion dollars in dry powder. Nobody can hardly buy anything. And the whole uh, mechanism of uh, the private equity asset class is sort of like coming up against some structural difficulties, it seems, um, that are not just attributable to sort of like being the top of the credit cycle. As Mark was saying, you have this sort of like economic threshold under which it's just inefficient to play. And that goes from, I don't know where it is exactly, but it's X number of million in EBITDA down to zero practically, right? And the search fund is efficient up to the point where the searcher is no longer motivated based on the cash flow of the company. <coughs> and for maybe a Harvard Business School grad, that's going to have to be, I don't know, half a million in EBITDA before they tap out and say, hey, this is too small for me, right? So you're really going from within a, just a couple of decades, you know, private equity plowing through down to say 5 million and search funds maybe over the next two decades plows down to 50,000 and then it becomes inefficient for a, into like a financial buyer to buy it uh, regardless of their economic circumstances. I mean, something like that is kind of uh, what I would suspect would happen. There's two closing questions I always like to ask. First one being, what's the most fortunate event to have happened to you by chance? Yeah, I mean, I would have to say meeting my team. You know, I went into business school knowing, you know, I'd already started a, a company previously and uh, I'd been an entrepreneur my whole career. I knew that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but it's complete serendipity that uh, I met Mark as my uh, classmate in my section. You know, he was kind of uh, determined to be a consultant and... Uh, Hopefully I got to him early enough and convinced him otherwise. <laughs> and uh, in many ways, we sort of perfectly complement each other. And we were just sort of like unbelievably fortunate to, to add Karen to our team a couple of years ago. Uh, Karen's probably one of the most talented people around. And uh, yeah, just we feel like exceptionally lucky to have such a well-balanced team. It gives us a lot of... Uh, <laughs> scope to, to sort of uh, tackle all the challenges that the search funding community throws at us. And I think we have a fantastic sort of foundation for growing whichever direction this, this whole thing takes us. You know, Luke touched on this earlier, which is um, we made friends with a student that was cross-registered from Harvard in an MIT technical sales class. And that's what made us even aware search funds were all were like a thing. So sort of without that kind of serendipitous um, without that kind of serendipitous meeting and becoming friends with this Harvard student, uh, there's we might not we, we might still not know what search funds are today. <laughs> and it still remains to be like a relatively small slice of uh, the things that MBA students do. So I, I would have to say the, the probably the same thing. Because the MIT Alumni Association event that I went to was the first one I had gone to <laughs> in about you know a couple of decades, so so it was uh, just one of those uh, serendipitous things. And I, I went to Stanford, and uh, at the time I was at Stanford, you know, search funds were around, 
but I had a, a different bent. I was much more into uh, big corporate understanding um, how do companies really work um, and less into the entrepreneurial zone. So even having gone to Stanford, I wasn't aware of uh, search funds or cognizant of them. So uh, without that one chance encounter at the Alumni Association, I don't think I would have met Mark and Luke and certainly wouldn't have had nearly as much fun. And then my last question is, What's the best business that you've ever seen? Is it that tow truck business, most likely, or uh, towing business with the phone insurance, or is there another one you've come across that was equally as impressive to you? Well, we're based in Portland, Oregon, and um, a company that maybe some some people might know is Consumer Cellular, and it's kind of remarkable the way they were able to uh, build such an impressive business, but basically what happened was Consumer Cellular realized that there was kind of two markets out there that were sort of underserved, one on the capacity side and one on the demand side, and the idea is that um, basically elderly people and some other uh, segments of the users of cell phones thought that cell phones were too complicated. So why don't we make a simple, simple cell phone that just has big buttons and is easy to use? And then the other thing they noticed was that a lot of the wireless carriers had extra bandwidth. So what they did was they bought extra bandwidth from companies like AT&T and sold it on very, very simple phones for a discounted rate that covered a lot of Can market. Can you like to give it a shot? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's like I have no relation with this company. Well, you know, I... I this is probably not the business school answer, but I think being the COO, I just love a business that operates well and efficiently and uh, one that provides like extraordinary um, customer service from the customer's perspective. Like if we if we can you know please a customer, make them happy and um, you know retain their goodwill and for the long haul, I think um, that that's a great business, and those are the businesses I fall in love with. Uh, and unfortunately, I can't think of one that people would know unless you lived in Portland, Oregon. Uh, my favorite, I guess, example of one is actually uh, an old steakhouse here. Have you eaten at the Ringside Steakhouse? Yes. I yes. Have. That that works like clockwork. And I, uh, my husband's a musician, so I've spent a lot of time in restaurants and pubs and bars, and I can pretty much tell you in about 10 minutes or less uh, whether something works well or not. <laughs> and that, that business works uh, incredibly efficiently. Um, and from a customer standpoint there, I don't think I've ever uh, been in better. My mother once returned a steak because it wasn't the one she... When she got it, she was not as thrilled about it because she had hemmed and hawed about ordering between two different types of steak. And they said, okay, if you're not delighted by it, we will bring you the other steak. There was nothing wrong with the steak they served. It was perfectly cooked, um, but she just wasn't delighted. And I was like, okay, every time my mother comes to town, that's where we're going to go. Thank all of you very much for joining me today. I've had a great time chatting with you. I'm looking forward to having another one, hopefully soon. Yes, I'd love that. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. We are a new podcast and leaving us reviews helps us tremendously. Please leave one if you feel so inclined. For show notes and more information, please visit our website at thinklikeowners.com.